So the resurrection gospel, brothers, concerns, first of all, and above all, the glory of God. Before Christ offers himself on the night that he's betrayed, he begins his, what people call his high priestly prayer this way, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And Isaiah 53, which we've been praying all through this past week, the, uh, the final servant song in Isaiah begins this way. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. And then we launch into Isaiah 53, which is all about the son offering his life so that, in fact, he may prosper and he may be exalted and lifted up and be very high. The great hymn to Christ in Philippians 2 closes, remember, because Jesus had humbled himself to death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And remember, the, the likely background to that is from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. The resurrection is, first of all, the glorification of God, and above all, the glorification of God. It's the glorification of God through defeat of sin and its consequence by divine power working through a human nature. So the cross and the resurrection of Christ are his triumph over sin, our sin, and its consequences, decay and death. Famous quote from Nicholas Cabasilas, a 14th century monk that I'll quote a couple of times in the, the talk. It was a man who should wrest the victory for himself, but only God who was able to do so. It was necessary, therefore, for manhood to be joined to deity, and for one and the same to possess the nature both of him to whom the warfare pertained and of him who was able to prevail in it. John Calvin says, It was his task to swallow up death. Who but life? could do this. It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world or air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself a redeemer in the person of his only begotten Son. God vindicates and displays his glory by defeating death by death through the mortal nature of Christ because it's joined to the power 
of the eternal Word of God. The one who, as Peter says, is the author of life. The one who has the power of an indestructible life. The one whom it was not possible for death to hold. So that the power of the one who is a murderer from the beginning is vanquished by the one who is life and gives life. The resurrection is the glorification of God through the display of His goodness toward and in the creature. So God confirms His own glory out of sheer goodness, glorifying us with Himself. God's glory, as we know, brothers, is His goodness manifested in power. And His power is displayed in the service of His goodness. So the God who created us out of nothing in an act, the act of sheer benevolence redeems us from no cause other than his own goodness. And the glory on display in the resurrection is the victory and the vindication of that grace. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so Paul goes on later in the chapter to say that now we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. God's goodness and the glory of His goodness and the goodness of His glory are such that He shares them with us. He shares His goodness by creating us. His love and His goodness diffuse themselves in the very act of creating. And He restores and elevates us through His goodness by redeeming us so that His victory becomes our victory but not because we merited it, but because He shares it. Great indeed, we confess, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Christ became flesh, and He's vindicated in the spirit, through his resurrection, to show forth how glorious this one is, who's veiled himself in the weakness and the lowliness of our human flesh. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 of Abraham, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. The words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's because we have faith in his promises that we're reckoned righteousness. <laughs> Going back to Nicholas Cabasilas, I'm going to use a long quotation from him. 
and comment on it a little bit. He says something really striking when he, he, he comes to meditate on how it is that we share the victory in the crown of Christ. He says, how shall we explain that victory and its crown, the fruit of toil and sweat, which come to us from baptism, he says. For though we neither struggle nor suffer when we celebrate these rites, we yet sing the praise of that struggle and celebrate that victory and venerate the trophy and display fervent and unutterable love for that champion. As for those wounds and bruises and that death, we make them our own and apply them to ourselves by whatever means we may and become one flesh with him, him who was put to death and rose again. Wherefore, we fittingly enjoy the benefits that come from that death and those struggles. It's his toil. It's his sweat. One of the things that's striking is Martin Luther used to, to admonish people to look back to their baptism when they were in a crisis of faith. And he says, look back to your baptism because you didn't do this yourself. It was done to you. No Christian baptizes himself ever. And that's a really profound truth. Something has to be done to us in order for us to gain this victory. So Cabasilas takes a, a couple of contrasting examples. And he says, look, suppose that someone passing by should try to rescue a captured tyrant awaiting his punishment in order to crown him and honor his tyranny. At his fall, would he not consider himself to die and cry out against the laws in protest against justice, all this without shame or hiding his weakness, but boldly and brazenly, brazenly testifying and making display? What verdict would we think fit for one who glorifies a tyrant this way? He said, would we not punish him like a tyrant? Obviously, in every way. On the other hand, let us suppose the completely opposite case. One who admires that victor and rejoices when he has won and weaves for him the victor's crown, rouses applause in the crowd and moves the audience, with pleasure pays him homage, kisses his face, grasps his hand, and is, <coughs> excuse me, utterly beside himself, over the hero and the victory he has won, as though it were he whose head was to be crowned. In the eyes of favorable judges, this man would have some share in the victor's prizes, just as the other would share in the victor's punishment. In addition, were the victor himself to stand in no need of the prizes of his victory, but prefer above all to see his his admirer to enjoy the honor of the audience and regard the crowning of his friend as his own prize in the contest, would it not be most fitting, most appropriate that the latter should carry off the crown, even though without the sweat and peril of the conflict? How do we gain the spoils of the victory? We praise the victor. How do we gain the prizes of the champion we praise the champion. And 
out of his largesse and out of his goodness and out of the superabundance of everything he's won, he then honors us just because we recognize reality, because we acknowledge the truth. In effect, we, we go beyond that. You can apply this to our mission. We go through the crowd rousing people to praise him with us, to honor him with us. Cabasilas says, when we are baptized, we despise the tyrant. We spit at him and we shun him. As for our champion, we praise him. We admire him. We worship him and love him with all our soul so that we, by overflowing love, feed on him as on bread. We're anointed by him as with chrism. We are clothed with him as by water. It is evident that he undertook the warfare on our behalf, and for the sake of our victory, he endured death. The resurrection is a glorification of God through the creation of men, then, who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we now live for the day when, as Revelation chapter 22 says, there will no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So as Paul says, therefore let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. Man glories in not himself, but in God alone, and thereby shares God's glory. Paul says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. Behind that, and the other place where Paul probably alludes to it in 2 Corinthians, is this passage in Jeremiah 9, beginning at verse 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Brothers, let us be self-effacing men. Let us be men who turn the glory from ourselves to him. Let us be men who, above all, when we realize the poverty of whatever glory we might have claimed, recognize that there is still a way to glory, and it's in him. Let us be men who boast not in ourselves, but in him, so that one day, unaccountably, Without human sense, he may glory in us because of his victory in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.